Hello and welcome to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people from Pender Island, British Columbia. I am your host, Chris Wakalek, and I'll be sitting down in one-on-one conversations with current Pender Island residents to hear the stories that brought them to this thoughtful little island we live on, and to also hear the stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. Today, I will be speaking with Lester Quitsaw. Now, if you know Lester like I know Lester, then you're going to know him as that tall, soft-spoken musician that lives on the island. Well, we're going to get to hear Lester talk about music along with many other things. We're going to get to hear Lester talk about his love of snowboarding when he was a teen living in Alberta in the 80s. Lester will also go in depth into describing why yoga has become so important in his life recently. And he's going to talk about music. Lester's going to let us know about how he got into music as a young kid and what some of his influences were. And he'll talk about his early years playing music and how that transitioned into becoming a professional. All that and more in a amazing little interview here. And first off, people tell me that I have a radio voice. Well, brace yourself for the smooth sounds that are going to be emanating from Lester's vocal cords. And secondly, wow, what an amazing, thoughtful, giving, and very open interview I had with Lester. It was just truly a pleasure. As well, this is going to be the last episode of 2019. So at the end of the interview, I'm going to do a year-end wrap-up. So please stay tuned for that. But that is then, and this is now. And without further ado, here's my interview with Lester Quitsaw. Lester, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great to have you here. We've uh, we've been talking for a little bit so far, and uh, so it's been a delightful conversation so far. But uh, we are here on a Wednesday morning, about ten a.m. And uh, how's your morning been so far? It's been good. Typical, cloudy, misty, magical December morning. Nice. I like that you use the word magical. I'm trying to add that to my vocabulary more. Yeah. Right on. It's a good one. All right. Well, the first traditional question that we get to on the podcast is uh, what brought you to Pender Island? Well, moved here about 18 years ago. Uh, My parents moved here before me in 86, 1986. So that brought me back and forth to Pender. And I met my wife here. We got married and got a place here. So that's the short story of that process. Um, There was a point where I visited Pender when I was young. I was 12 years old, I believe, or 10. And I remember jumping off the rock into Buck Lake before it was a water reserve. So that was the spot where all the kids hung out. So I spent two weeks here on a holiday with my parents before we... It was our first time here, and Magic Lake was just a bunch of lots pretty much then. There's very little people hadn't arrived yet. So I had this mini bike that the people we were visiting, and I was just enthralled with motorcycles, so I had the greatest time, the best summer ever, just tooling around all these crazy roads in Magic Lake on a little mini bike. 
So that's my first memory of Pender. Okay, cool. So what, what year was this, roughly? Hey, that would be in the 70s, early 70s. I would be 8, between 8 and 12. So, yeah, mid-70s. Okay, mid-70s. And so you were tooling around on a little mini mini yeah, bike? Yeah, one of those ones with a gas engine, Briggs & Stratton. You pull the, pull the thing, and it's got the little 10-inch... Uh, Little tires, a real mini bike, no gears, just a centrifugal clutch. And I was just in heaven. I always wanted a motorcycle because, yeah, I eventually got one. Okay, cool. So uh, that was it. Beautiful. Pender right. Island. I was free. Just, <laughs> just tooling around, exploring, getting lost. So if you get lost in, in Magic Lake now, it, you know, it was just, I was this young kid and getting lost and... And I did get lost a few times. So you come by it honestly if you get lost in Magic Lake. Yeah, totally. But I, I love that you talk about jumping off a rock into Buck Lake because now it's fenced in. That's the only yeah, exactly. way I've known Buck Lake is... Uh, yeah. No, that was just the, the place where all the kids hung out all day long. It's amazing. Seriously. Okay. That's kind of neat. I've never actually heard that before, that that was the swim spot. Yeah. Yeah. Before cool. it was a reservoir. Neat. Yeah. Right on. Okay, so your parents introduced you to Pender when you were a kid and... Uh... And then eventually my parents bought a lot here. They went on a holiday and me and my brother were at home alone in Edmonton and they phoned home and said, well, we're so excited. We bought a lot and, you know, it was a big move for them. And eventually they retired out here and my dad retired and built a house on Spyglass Road, and uh, that was 1986. And I moved here in 2002. So I'd come and go visit them. I thought I'd never live here because it was too boring for me as a young, in my, you know, teens and 20s. I guess I was in my 20s when my parents moved here. So, yeah, I thought it was kind of boring. But then I um, eventually met my wife here. And my whole ideals changed. I always had a dream of living off the land, growing my own food, and stuff like that. So eventually, our place on Port Wash became that place. Well, we'll uh, we'll weave our way there mm. to uh, to get to that part. But you had a first introduction to the island as a young kid. But where where did you grow up? Where was your home when you were? A I boy? grew up in Edmonton, North Side, kind of. Um, when I go back there now, it's actually a rougher part of town. Sort of lower, lower middle class. Um, and grew up there. Always wanted to be Jimmy Page or like Led Zeppelin. And my brother turned me on to Zeppelin. He was six years older than me and I was eight years old listening to Led Zeppelin in the basement in my north side home and dreaming of being, you know, a rock star. So that's where that little journey began and took a while, took a lot, bonking away on the guitar in the garage till I was 18, 19, just formed a band and uh, sort of evolved from there. Okay. That's pretty cool to have an older sibling who introduces you to cool music. Yeah. Yeah. I was eight years old thinking, wow, this is cool. And I'd bring these records to school and what was it grade three art class we got to bring records and uh, i'd bring zz top and led zeppelin and everyone would go what is this and 
got kind of ridiculed there. Everyone was into Bay City Rollers at the time. So that six years, you know, it sort of put put me ahead of the game a little bit, eight years old. What was your favorite Zeppelin album when you were a kid? Oh, Zeppelin II, for sure. That was the first one. I bought it at Kresge's for $4. I remember going, checking out the record selection. It was fairly limited back then, you know, your classic rock. And uh, just remember going there, checking out what was new and what new releases. I mean, it wasn't even like that. It's whatever they stocked, you know. It's interesting time. Was that a classic uh, record place in Edmonton, Kresge's? Or? That was your, you know, I say Kresge's because that was kind of like your everything kind of store. Simpson, it was like your low, lower grade Simpson Sears okay. kind of thing. And then I'd walk down to the other end of the mall and there'd be Simpson Sears and these two outlets would have a slightly different selection, you know. And so, yeah, what I'm saying is back in the day, there was, you know, not a lot to choose from and records and rock and roll was pretty new and here you got these mainstream stores you know selling selling Led Zeppelin records there wasn't really a Sam the record man yet or anything like that you know I actually just did an interview with uh, Steve Wright the last one I did and he talked about the influence of the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and how it actually totally impacted his life quite a lot and so you're talking about mm -hmm. Led Zeppelin and yeah, I, yeah. I love Led Zeppelin yeah and uh, and yeah we that, share that <laughs> and so you say you wanted to be like Jimmy Page and that got you started into playing the guitar and then yeah. plunking away for 10 years in the garage yeah I kind of wanted to be Robert Plant too so uh, you know <laughs> <laughs> I got the hair for Robert Plant, and I, I, God gave me some good hair. But I, you know, I haven't lived out that dream yet. But I am rocking out more than ever now, so uh, it's not over yet. Cool. You know, a lot of people know you as a musician, and uh, I'm super curious to delve deeper into figuring out and hearing the stories about how you turned it from being in a, a hobby into a profession. But mm -hmm. when you said that you started playing in bands when you were 18, 19, is that right? Just had one band buddy of mine, J Jeff Davis was his name, he lived in the neighborhood. He was a drummer. And so he'd cart his drums over in a stolen shopping cart and we'd jam out in the garage. So there's just two of us. And then eventually we formed a band with another friend from Kelowna. I moved to Kelowna for six months once, I think, with a friend from Edmonton who grew up in Kelowna, if that makes sense. We went back to his hometown for a period of time, formed a band, and then brought that uh, those players to Edmonton for the Slippin' Lizards. That was the first band. The Slippin' Lizards. Mm -hmm. In Edmonton. So that was my first professional uh, experience. That was the beginning. Okay. What did that look like? You guys playing shows on weekends or? Yeah, any gig we could get. You know, it was, the market was different then, mostly bars, lounges. It was a trio. We'd haul in a PA system, set her up, play. You know, you'd negotiate a fee. You know, there's some crazy gigs where I played this Italian restaurant, this guy in Little Italy, and you know, we convinced them, yeah, we're, you know, we're really good. And there was no marketing like you had now, you know, you couldn't just send them a video or whatever that they would go more on feel and, and, you know, you could, you'd have a cassette tape, you know, and you could give someone a tape to, to let them know what you sounded like. So anyway, this Italian bar owner, he says, okay, uh, you're going to come and set up at uh, two o'clock. 
he had us playing like six sets. We played all afternoon, took a dinner break, and then three more sets in the evening, right? <laughs> all for a hundred bucks each, you know? <laughs> it was great. We'd play anywhere. And uh, yeah, so that's probably the longest gig we ever did, but we did it. We were fierce, you know, fresh out of the gate. We played every note as if our life depended on it. And that gig was the most important thing in our life at that time. So it was pretty exciting. And that band did really well because, you know, we gave her so hard and so much. And it was sort of a blues based. We started in a blues bar in Edmonton. The uh, commercial hotel was our first gig. So it was blues based, you know, but, you know, like Led Zeppelin was blues based. We rocked it up a little more than traditional blues band but we didn't we weren't like Led Zeppelin we were still trying to fit into the blues niche and playing blues bars so it was more traditional but it rocked a little harder than your straight ahead blues band and were you guys writing your own songs yeah mostly a lot but then we did covers Muddy Waters covers and stuff like that and that lasted about a year we did a few road gigs and made our own posters this friend's little brother was a little artist and he made these cool posters and it's almost like we had these characters cartoon characters it was pretty i figure if if we were able to keep it all together i think we would have done really well it's just that we split up and went our own ways in a, in a hurry and we played some snowboarding events it was one of them outdoor thing snowboarding was part of my life at that time too which was 1986 before anybody knew of snowboarding. And so there was a point where I was deciding between music or snowboarding. Oh, seriously? Yeah. Well, let's just segue to that. Yeah, okay, because it's about the same period of time. Slipping sure. lizards and snowboarding. Cool. Next. Okay, well, how did you get into snowboarding? I saw this ad in a ski magazine, this guy carving. It was the first Burton ad. And he, this dude's carving in spring snow. And I saw that and I go, oh, I got to do that. That's amazing. Surfing on snow was, you know, the old school boards and everything was more like surfing on snow. And so I, it took me a long time to track down a board, period. There was this dude in Calgary selling snowboards out of a skateboard shop. But I basically bought his first board. He had sort of a front, you know, and think, oh, yeah, we got snowboards. And But ultimately, I bought his first snowboard, and we became best buddies because he had nobody to snowboard with. He knew these dudes in California that were making boards. This was Tom Sims and Chuck Barfoot. And so this is the beginning of snowboarding. You had your Tom Sims, you had Chuck Barfoot, you had Jake Burton, and those were the, basically the three main guys making snowboards. And surfer dudes, skateboard dudes, figuring out how to surf on snow. And those old boards, first board had bungee cords with those things you put on your golf shoes, pointing up to sort of hold your feet in place yeah. on the board. So to ride a board like that, it really was surf style because your feet weren't fully attached. If you caught air, the bungee cord kept the board from going one direction and you going the other direction but basically it was you had to finesse that thing 
you couldn't go on ice or anything. It had to be powder. So, yeah, the evolution of snowboarding was something I was actively a part of when I look back. But there was about 20 of us in North America. Boarding, we kind of knew each other. Well, seriously, 20 people in North America? That, uh, you know, it was that smaller numbers, you know, as far as the scene. 20, 40, but those kind of numbers, you know. And um, everyone was trying to figure it out, working together, really. There's a bit of, you know, business competition. But in the beginning, it's all just a bunch of guys trying to figure out how to make these things work and trying to make them better. And it all started with things like there was a fin on each edge and it went from rubber straps to fast X buckles and plastic that Chuck Barfoot had these thick pieces of plastic. He would make this jig melting that plastic so that he could bend them to make your Sorrells fit into that mold. Well, like we just had Sorrells and we'd give ankle support with duct tape then eventually we took ski boot liners, put them in the Sorrells. That was a little better. And then there was the invention of high back bindings so that when you're on your heel side, you had some support because now everything has high backs, but it was all your ankles doing everything. There was, you know, so if you can envision that evolution of being on a board with bungee cords as bindings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the first Jake Burton board was just the snurfer. And that was just a board with a rope on the nose. And and that's totally insane. I guess my first memory of before that is actually trying to stand up on a toboggan, right? It's like, yeah, everyone's sitting down. Look at me. I can stand up. So that, I mean, I guess that that's where Jake's idea with the rope came in and he actually improved on the toboggan part. Yeah. Actually, I heard an amazing podcast about six months ago with Jake Burton. It's called uh, How I Built This is yeah. the name of the podcast. And he, and he went in died. depth. He in- just died. Oh, seriously? Yeah. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. He sounded like an amazing person. He was an amazing person. I never met Jake, but he was sort of the, a different school. There was the East Coast. Jake was Vermont, East Coast. And then there was California, Tom Sims, Chuck Barfoot. Uh, the guy from Avalanche Snowboards, there was a handful. And I levitated more towards the surfer side of it. Jake was came more from the skiing aspect. He talked about the fact that mountains didn't allow snowboarding at first. Absolutely. So where did you go snowboarding in Alberta? Well, there was one exception in that because my friend Ken Achenbach, the guy selling boards in Calgary, he built a relationship with Sunshine Village from the beginning, and he convinced them that snowboarding was safe. And so they actually always allowed snowboarding from the get-go, which you had to have a proficiency pass that said you could turn and stop. But so we would drive, I'd drive from Edmonton to Sunshine every weekend from the time I bought that board. But most ski resorts didn't allow it. And we would do, we went to Big White when I lived in Kelowna, we went there did a demonstration. We were trying to promote the sport, saying, look, we can turn, we can unload these lifts, it's safe. And it was all, oh, Transportation Canada that had these rules, you know. And, and so it was just trying to get the system to allow it. it. was a huge, huge struggle and roadblock. And there was just a handful of resorts throughout the states that allowed it. And eventually when, you know, 
follow the money eventually when it became a viable, profitable thing for ski areas to allow it. It got momentum, that critical mass, and now pretty much every resort allows it. But back in the day, we would just hike. I remember hiking up the front side of Big White, and then we would snowboard the back side, which had no skiers going to because you had to hike up there. We would just go up and down, up and down all day. And then at the end of the day, snowboard down the front side. People would look at us, what are those things? And it was kind of cool being a part of something that that's really obscure and nobody, is that fun? They, you know, the questions they would ask and stuff. I guess I've always kind of chosen a path that's been unique or different. Like, same with music. I I didn't want a normal life of, you know, a house with a white picket fence and, and a family, that sort of thing never resonated with me so I was always trying to be different and and not be a part of that mainstream side of things so maybe to tie off the snowboarding section here mm-hmm. my first question that I had in the beginning though was that what was the feeling that you had when you first went snowboarding because it's a big difference to go from buying a snowboard and trying it to making it a huge part of your life what was the feeling that you had when you first had it? Because I heard that writing the, the way that you're describing it, <laughs> it doesn't sound easy. These boards don't sound like they're easy to maneuver, right? No, they're crazy. But they only worked in powder at the, at the beginning. So it was nice to just be out there in powder. You know, we'd always be going out of bounds in areas where there was powder. Even at Sunshine Village in Banff, where they allowed it, we would still seek out the prime spots so once you figured it out i mean it's just like groove it's like playing music you know you 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 find this groove and uh it's just you and that those elements you know that that's what i related to in snowboarding the fact that it was different and it was my thing it just i really related to it it took a long time to figure out how to make those boards work and you know, R&D, research and development, you get to file out and file that fin down to make it smaller. The fin acted as an edge. They didn't even have steel edges. It was, uh, we put them in ourselves. So it's just cool to be a part. I love the pioneering stages of things, it seems. I noticed the point where you're figuring things out and making it work with what you have. Well, I was into motorcycles for a while there and I really relate to the old bikes from the 70s and 60s and Norton and the Triumph because they were, it was a real pioneering stage. The breakthroughs were huge. And, and then once everything gets all scientific and complicated, like the boards today are amazing. But I found I had more fun back in the day when it was more about what we were doing than the, the board itself. You know? Interesting. So if everything's set and the platter's ready for you, just to go ahead and chow down and eat, it's just, it's not as exciting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a bit of the struggle that you find. The challenge, I guess, and the pioneering, the excitement of exploring, really. It's an exploration into kind of the unknown. And then once it's all figured out, well, then all you got to do is just practice and do what you're told kind of thing. But nobody, nobody was there to tell us how to work the thing. We were just figuring it out. So I guess that's what I like. I don't like being told what to do, maybe. 
<laughs> I don't think anybody does. No. Uh, well, did you ever have a competitive aspect to that? Yeah, well, that's the point where I guess at one point I was a professional or a sponsored rider in that the guy from Calgary knew was getting boards from Chuck Barfoot. And so a sponsored rider, you get a free board basically and you show up you're basically flying that flag and you show up to a contest. There was the first Mount Baker bank slalom contest. And so we went to that and I had a bar foot board. Chuck helped us out, gave us 50 bucks for gas and we were sponsored riders sort of thing, you know, at the first North American uh, snowboarding contest. Okay. You were a sponsored rider at the first North American snowboarding contest. The first or the fifth. Or maybe it was Mount Baker was the first place to allow snowboarding from the get-go as well. So I, I, maybe it was the fifth one or something like, or I placed fifth in the first I think it was the first one because they had a 30th anniversary and we all got invited to come back. Oh, right on. And, uh, but then they didn't have enough snow, so it got canceled. So it never, it, they took a rain check. Anyway, I never did go, but it would have been cool to be with those first guys, you know. 30 years later. Yeah. Yeah. So it was the first annual bank slalom, Mount Baker, and I placed fifth on my board without steel edges. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way it went down. I mean, it's all coming back. Awesome. Congratulations. That's uh, pretty sweet. So yeah. you said that there was a period of time where you were deciding whether or not it was going to be snowboarding or music, and then you shifted into music. What caused you to tilt it in that direction? I didn't like the competitiveness of a sport. I never did team sports too much. I played soccer, and which is a good sport. But I didn't like the, the competitiveness. So, And the physical, I realized I could probably play music a lot longer than being an athlete sort of thing. So I just steered away from that and got more into music. But still, hung out with my buddy Ken and we snowboarded and I helped. I mean, I tried to have a snowboard shop, you know, this is before anyone was even selling boards and I sold some skateboards and we had five boards and I sold one board that year. And then five years later, it all caught on and anybody involved became a millionaire almost overnight. Like anyone in the industry that did well had a shop, you know. So I chose music. It was just a little too early for snowboarding to be a, a means of making a living. Okay, and this, sorry, this shop was in Edmonton? In Kelowna. Oh, excuse me, Kelowna. Okay. Yeah, so I moved were... to Kelowna for a few years on and off, I guess. This was after the slip and lizards as well. It was on consignment. I, I was sort of helping someone that had this consignment shop, and I guess I brought in the snowboards on consignment, and I helped her choose what skateboards and stuff to order. So I was just helping out, I guess, really. That's what it was. And I didn't set, we sold one snowboard. So you started to lose a little bit of the taste for snowboarding. Uh, and the After the Mount Baker thing. Yeah. Because yeah, it's pretty, even though it was friendly kind of sport, we all knew each other and we were just having fun. But just that whole pressure of uh, doing a run and what's your best time. And that I just wasn't into it. I was into just being out in the mountain grooving with nature. 
Yeah, totally. Well, it totally changes everything having a competitive aspect to yeah. to things like that. It's funny. I I kind of like it, but at the same time, I totally understand about. I've never been into team sports either. I always yeah. like the individual sports. Yeah, and then it's fun. It's fun to compete uh, sometimes, but it's more fun just to just go yeah. and play. Yeah. So you transitioned more into music during your time in Kelowna after the. Uh, Moved back to Edmonton and then boom, got into the music. Okay. And so what time period was this in your early twenties? Uh, yeah, I was 23, I think. Okay. And were you, were you basically playing guitar still the whole way along or? Yeah. Guitar was my instrument and we needed a singer. Someone had to sing. So I started to sing. And when I listened to the slip and lizards of the way I sang, oh my God, I was trying so hard. You know, it sounded like a whole different person. It's just rawr, trying to sound gruff like some old blues guy, you know. A bit embarrassing almost when I listen to it now, but I was young. I you think know? I think that's how it goes. I think it's hard not to listen back into previous yeah. artistic things we've done in the past and not feel a little bit embarrassed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It shows that we've grown. Yeah. So Yeah, for sure. So when you had the second attempt at playing music in Edmonton, how did that wind up? Who so new musicians you're playing with or Yes, an older cat bass player named Farley Scott after the Slip and Lizards broke up. He sort of you know, we were pretty up and coming popular, so he sort of took me under his wing and we started another band called the Yard Dogs and uh he was an older musician, so he taught me a lot of stuff that I needed needed to learn and, and uh so we performed as the Yard Dogs for quite a few years. And that band was maybe didn't rock as hard, not quite as innocent and fierce as we, the Slippin' Lizards, but it was a little more stylistic and that more finesseful, I, I would think. Yeah, so that got me more in the folk blues kind of vein. And uh, we toured, played bars, tried to make a living at it. And uh, Farley had kids. And a family, so he needed a stable band, and so he sort of had a certain amount of not control, but it was it was our band, so you know it was a little more stable for him instead of waiting around for calls as a bass player, a professional musician, you're mostly a side man, so worked for him, worked for me. We went through different drummers. It's always been a trio, and um toured around, and at some point i wanted to sort of break off on my own and get out of bars. And one way of getting out of bars, I thought, would be play cafes and, and uh, sort of pioneered that sort of thing in a sense that there weren't a lot of people playing little concerts in little venues like a coffee shop sort of thing. And I'd go talk to a coffee shop and convince them that, you know, if we could charge everyone five bucks, get 30 people and have a concert in this space, you know, and there was a few throughout BC and rural areas that would want to do stuff like that. So I toured around doing that for quite a few years. Oh, really? So why'd you want to get out of the bars? Oh, smoke and drunks and just that whole scene. I wanted my music to be heard for what it was, you know, like your, your job playing a bar is to sell beer, really. And uh, so you rock out, get people dancing and... Yeah, it's just a whole different scene. No, I didn't drink. And the smoke. Like people, if you back in the day said someday 
nobody would be able to smoke in a bars and it would be outlawed. I would have said not in a million years. Like it just, that was a miracle. <laughs> and that happened long after I got out of bars, you know, and it was surreal. And then when I walk into a bar now, it's still surreal in that there's not smoke that you can cut with a knife. Right. And me and Farley, we were both healthy, health conscious people. We weren't really a part of that scene too much, but you know, we played music and that's how you made a living. So, at the end of the night, we'd be coughing and choking and airing our clothes out because the smoke is so bad, you know. So it was killing me. And so I just was determined to get out of bars. And uh, the folk scene was a little friendlier. And even though I wanted to be Jimmy Page, I sort of <laughs> headed that other direction as a professional and, and into the festival folk music circuit. Because blues bands, pretty much, the blues that at that time was obscure too, right? It wasn't as mainstream as it is now. Most people didn't know about the blues. and uh, So there was one blues bar, a couple blues bars in every town. And uh, yeah, so getting out of that scene was the goal. Okay. I can relate a little bit. I remember I spent a lot of time watching bands and bars. I never played music, but I'd loved going out and watching bands play. And yeah. when the rule in BC came down that you weren't going to be allowed to smoke in bars anymore, we were all aghast. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe yeah. this because I was a smoker at the time. But I remember that next morning waking up and just realizing, oh my gosh, my clothes don't reek of smoke yeah. right now. Yeah. This is actually a good thing. Yeah. Just took one, one night of being in a smoke-free bar to realize wow yeah i can't believe that that was the norm yeah yeah try six nights six nights a week and a saturday afternoon jazz session which was typical of a blues bar and you either did three nights thursday friday saturday or monday to saturday and nowadays gigs are so hard to find and and rare we look back on those days thinking wow six nights a week how awesome would that be to hone your craft you know but we didn't see it quite through those eyes, you know. We saw it as getting through, okay, the fourth set, the tag. Three sets and a tag. So the tag is is that last 15 minutes before last call. You get people to wait around for that last 15 minutes, you know. That's a long night. But, yeah, what an opportunity. If I had that opportunity now, I would... After a band's played six nights, if you played it with the intention of making the band better and tighter and worked on things and talked about things on the break, it was like, wow, what an opportunity. That doesn't happen anymore at all. It's one-nighters, one set, maybe two, which is all good. That's a concert situation. Like, you're not playing to a bunch of drunks trying to uh, impress each other. So, yeah, it is better now than it ever was. But yeah. it's it's harder getting paying gigs these days as a musician. So I hear. But when you say you transitioned from the bar scene and then talking to cafe owners and sort of setting up folk a bit of club scenes, yeah. folk club scenes, and then you you got into the folk festival, festival scene? scene, yeah, which was great. Did some recording. Had to have a recording. My first recording was uh, a cassette. You would make cassettes. That's something you could do as an independent artist. I mean, all this stuff, it's happened before independent artists, you know, were the norm. Yeah. There's a handful of people trying to figure out how to do it. And um, that's the way it seemed anyway, a smaller community. Uh, and then CDs came along. 
I'm so happy to sell the last of my cassettes that I had, you know, because CDs were moving in and uh, manufacturing CDs, you know, started releasing my own CDs. I guess the first was a solo acoustic one, which got some attention and got me some festival gigs. And then there's many more after that. So what was the goal for you when you were playing music? Was it just the opportunity to get to continue to pursue this as a career, to hone your craft, to get to make the next album? What was what was your thinking at that age as to the drive that mm. kept you going? Well, all those things you mentioned, but, you know, the drive was to get to better playing situations, you know, concert halls, small theaters, so fairly career oriented that way because you know that's what it takes is notoriety you know every gig is a stepping stone to a better gig sort of thing so really the business side of it i was pretty driven by it and the art form itself you know i did what i had to do to deliver the goods at the gig but it's really always been about performing you know for me and uh, only until recently have I really started to really just enjoy working and honing the craft, you know, more with joy and just freedom as opposed to honing the craft so that I could, you know, get better gigs and play concert halls and stuff like that. But pretty, like I say, pretty career-oriented. And that led to, you know, getting kind of burnt out with doing it all myself. When you say it was all about the performing, I, I think a number of people listening would not have any experience playing live music in front of people mm -hmm. in their life, and uh, myself included. I've never done that. But uh, what is it about the performing aspect that, that was so, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, like invigorating, yeah. enthralling, or, or how would you describe it? What is it about performing that you enjoy? It's exciting. It's kind of like dropping in into a, a, a skateboard, a bowl, or, a, you know, a mountainside, you drop in and, and, and you just see what happens. And, and then you have a witness and a connection with the audience. You know, you all go there together. That's what it is for me. It's uh, scary and it's exciting. And what it is for me is it, it forces a direct connection with that creative process, uh, that creative with God, basically, God being that groove, that zone, that zen. It's like snowboarding down a face. You're connected with something greater than yourself because if you don't, you're, you're going to wipe out or you're going to suck or something. So it forces that connection. And like I said, it's scary and it's exciting, but that's what it's been about for me. And then that's where the magic happens, you know. Performers like Jimi Hendrix, and, and the reason it's so exciting is just, boom, he was just so into it, it like that all the time. And that's what it is for me. So it forces a connection. Well, it, yeah, forces or it just makes you be present and, yeah, that connection is what happens. Yeah. And sometimes more than others, you know. And I realize if I didn't have that, you know, I would have not been a very balanced human because that, that connection freedom from myself and you know happened especially in soloing like a form like blues and jazz you, you're improvising and so 
that connection, it's it's better than uh, anything I've experienced. Just being in the state of flow and creativity. Yeah, yeah, and that's what people look for in a lot of things, and that's why people do drugs, and you know, is to be free or escape the pain of being, I don't know, tortured by our own minds and being human. So, but when I look back with the wisdom I have now, that's sort of it was a huge part of me being sane as well. Nice. And it's such a nice opportunity, like you said, you know, having the chance to do it six nights a week, right? And in, in retrospect, you're looking yeah, at that thinking. Yeah, time. Yeah, and, and getting to experience that time and time again during mm-hmm. the week. So, when you were doing that many shows a week, was there, what was like the daytime like? Were you anxious, anticipating? What were the feelings you had in the daytime before like a nighttime gig? Well, there's the freedom... You know, you obviously sleep till noon because bars are open till two. But when you're on the road, it's nice because you can get to know some people. You know, it's a little community, a sense of community. So I built over 20, 30 years of touring. Instead of being part of a tight community like Pender Island, which, you know, I eventually experienced a closer community. I had a large community where you go to a town like Yellowknife or Whitehorse and, well, you know, these people that you met from the last six nights I did there. And uh, so I developed a lot of connection with people. Have lunch with someone that day or, you know, there's time for that, which is nice. And so you can actually get to know people pretty good to a certain level eventually you leave right and so there's only a certain amount of closeness and later what i wanted to experience was a tighter community and and to be a part of that when someone you know has a birthday party i'm there like i've spent all these years on the road and so there was a period later on pender where i stayed home and i got a job here at the recycling depot i wanted to be a part of this community more and so I spent a good five six years doing that because I realized I'm away all the time a lot and uh, so you know nobody bothers calling Lester for a birthday party because they know he's gone you know sort of thing so I missed out on that and later you know got a sense I feel a sense more of a deeper community so my sense of community became a lot more important than my career at some point but you know when you're in 20s and 30s you 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 just go 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 yeah you know what you just described about having these friendships in different places throughout north america canada and then rolling in and seeing people that you were interacting with months or years ago and and rekindling those friendships for brief periods of time i just had lauren mann in a couple episodes ago she pretty much described the same thing as being a traveling musician, that mm-hmm. her community was that, and it was great, but wanted to develop a sense of community within a smaller place. So maybe let's get to that for yourself right now. So sure. you you wound up coming to Pender Island and living here and staying here permanently. But how did you wind up, I guess, first of all, deciding that you were going to have a place on Pender? And right. I don't really know this story very well. So maybe uh, you can you can pick it up and describe how, how sure. you wound up coming here. Well, I came home for Christmas, as I often did, to my parents, John and Ann Quitsaw, that lived here. And it was Christmas Eve. My mom kind of dragged me to the ferry. They had a tradition of singing in the last boat uh, Christmas carols. And uh, 
for some reason, I, I said, yeah, sure, why not? And so I went with her, and that's where I first met my wife, May. She was at that same gathering, and her father actually started that whole ritual, Dinti Moore. And there we set eyes on each other, and sparks were flying. And uh, from that point on, we got married very shortly after that next summer we got married. We were both really ready and uh, a lot of magic happened in a short period of time. Uh, I actually met May. She was a performer as well, musician, May Moore. I met her at a festival five or six years before that. And I saw her walk in with these two guitars, put her guitars down with intention. And she was there to do sound check. And the way she walked in, she had these boots on and way she was carrying those guitars, I said to myself, wow, someday I'll be with a woman like that. <laughs> wow. I'm crying just thinking about it. Uh, it was amazing. I just wasn't ready for a real, real woman like that. And so six, seven years later, we set eyes on each other and someone actually took a picture at that moment. And it was just a random picture where you just see us and we're looking at each other. And that's the moment we set looked at each other in the eyes like that. And Get they, out of here. They captured that. Then they just, oh, here's a picture of you guys at that ferry where you met. And sure enough, so there's that, you know. Both of us were had surrendered to being the rest of our days by ourselves. We both had lousy relationships up until then, and we were happy on our own. And I don't know, maybe that's why it's worked. You know, we were both stable and solid and just being with ourselves but you know undeniably we we had this attraction and and it just felt so good to be together so we didn't want to waste any time and within six months i proposed we got married in september that year after meeting that that christmas and yeah it's all sort of history from there I remember going home after that Christmas thinking, oh, no, I can't go there. Um, you know, uh, I was convinced I, I couldn't pursue this thing with me. And I basically cried all the way home, having myself convinced and, and just that alone. And then later realized, no, this is undeniably, if I walk away from this, I'll forget this for the rest of my life. So that's when it sort of, realized it wasn't that house with the white pickets fence. It was something that could actually work. We're both musicians. We understand what it's like being a musician and an artist. So it was meant to be. And so things just fell into place. We found a place in Port Wash. It was amazing how that came together. We got word that the deal came through on our wedding day. Like it was just all these magical things just came through. And that's the thing, you know, when you're positive, you're totally in love and you're open to everything. And that's just sort of how life can be if we can stay in that place. Open, negativity doesn't shut things down. Like all this magic just kept happening. And uh, that's just from being open and believing, really. We were so, and still are, I mean... Our love and our relationship is just deeper and in an amazing place now 
more than it ever was, um, luckily, because, you know, people's lives, it always doesn't line up like that. So all I'm saying is all the magic that happened and supported us being together and coming to Pender. And it was a no-brainer for me to come to Pender because my parents were here. It's a beautiful place. I sold my place in Edmonton and moved here that fall, a year, eight months later. I love how you're describing that if you're open to positivity and wonderful things and magic, mm. you know, you're open to seeing it and it'll work its way in, you know, yeah. it, you'll, you'll see it because it's there. It's there to be observed and seen, yeah. right? Yeah, but uh, Yeah, we're so much limited by our belief system and each generation pushes those things in many ways, like say for instance i was into motorcycling and now they do flips like flips somersaults on motorcycles you know and that's just because some dude believed he could do that but it took a whole generation or a whole lifetime to believe that right so whatever we believe you you manifest right it's <laughs> just we're dealing with our own parameters our own restrictions of, of the mind it's what i believe now for sure. Well, I think we're going to get into a little bit more of that when uh, we talk about how you got into yoga, which is something I want to uh, touch in on. But maybe we'll just make our way there briefly because I just want to uh, pick it up from when you had the house on Pender, you just, you um, got married, and then how were the first few years being a full-time resident, essentially, like your place of residence on Pender Island? Mm. Well, it was beautiful. We had We have a beautiful property, two acres that it was both of our dream to live healthy, grow our own food. And, and so that work began working the farm, doing all the infrastructure and changes to make it uh, a food forest, basically, where we grow all our own food and still maintain a career. I mean, it was always a challenge putting on both hats, working so hard in the garden and then honing my craft and keeping that musician thing going on. And so that was always been a bit of a challenge, but we continued to work hard at both those things. And eventually, I ended up, you know, taking a break from that professional side of being a traveling musician. And uh, all that hard work is, is slowing down a bit. And we're reaping the rewards of, you know, these small trees getting big and getting the fruit from our hard work, labor. Thank God as I don't think I could do it all over again. <laughs> do do it all over again? In yeah. Referencing? Working on a farm and, and, you know, we did it with a shovel and not an excavator and stuff like that. You know, so for the most part, it's still a humbling uh, making a living as an artist. You know, you have your high points and, and your waves of ups and downs, income-wise and spirit and inspiration-wise as well. Right now, I'm on a definitely on an upswing, and uh, I've freed my mind of a lot of the negativity or anxiety around performing and 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 just being a creative artist. And that's because of the yoga practice. Really, that's made my art and my whole life better. 
Right on. Okay, well, let's lean into the yoga side of this conversation. I'd like to talk more about it and have people hear about it as well, too. But you are practicing yoga quite a lot. You're teaching yoga and you got into this approximately three years ago, you said? I took a teacher training three years ago and I was, I guess, in 2016. And before that, I would just, you know, go to yoga classes and practice maybe once a week. And uh, I guess... I needed something outside of music and uh, something that I could see maybe making a living on Pender Island is another reality that hasn't always been easy. You know, taking up physical labor at, at 55 is humbling experience. So I tried, uh, you know, I toyed around with this at least not to make money off, off yoga, but, you know, at least teach and, and pass on the, the teachings and at the end of the day, maybe help financially a little bit and, and not have an aching body at the end of the day from hard work. So that was my initial intention. But after taking an intense training at the Salt Springs Center of Yoga, which I believe is a great training because you're there for 14 days, it's like, you know, yoga boot camp and and then you take a break and then you go back afterwards. So in that process of the training, all aspects of yoga, which most people don't get to because, uh, you know, a, a class, a yoga class with the asana, which is the breathing, stretching, the physical side of it, doesn't often get to the full practice of yoga, which is meditation, breathing exercises, pranayama it's called. And it's basically self inquiry you know who am i what am i that's what the whole practice is all about and uh, so that's helped me immensely and has changed my perspective on life on performing on playing music it's uh, basically we all have our experience the mind our habits and thought patterns and yoga frees us of those things those repetitive maybe negative patterns and gives us liberation and so life is just that much more enjoyable i realize that i've chased rainbows all my life you know like oh when this happens i'll be happy or very goal oriented and learning now that all that stuff is created in the mind and so i don't have to go very far to experience peace or joy and it's all a matter of work in the mind and uh, having the tools to tap into that bliss or peace that you get through um, clearing, freeing ourselves of the constant thought and patterns of the busy mind, the monkey mind. Yeah. Well, it's something that we all struggle with, even if we're not even aware of the fact. Because Yeah, that's the thing, becoming aware of it. One of the things at the training was you can't get out of jail until you know you're first you got to know you're in jail before you can even get out of it. Yeah. And, you know, ignorance is certainly bliss to a certain degree. Like once you start inquiring or realizing, wow, you know, I get really nervous before this sort of social function all the time. Every time I feel this anxiety over and over and over again. What's that all about? You know? So it goes from that to, you know, being aware of it to actually maybe not even feeling that anxiety anymore or 
that stuff still comes up for me, but I'm just aware of it and, and, and yoga and, and realizing the nature of the mind, you can have liberation. Like every day that those little voices are still in my head, but they don't have the same power. It's like, oh, you again, right. And then I walk through that fire again, you know, without the pain. Thanks for sharing this because this is really important stuff and I want to stick with this a little bit because I'm super curious about this and I like talking about this stuff and I feel as if people listening would enjoy hearing about this as well too. But mm. you told me earlier before we started that you've been doing yoga every day. Well, since the training, one of the things, the first thing you do in the morning is, you know, you take care of your shot karma. You take physical things like there's neti. Where you you take care of your physical body, you know, developing practices like um, scraping your tongue, fasting is a good good thing. Neti, salt water bath cleans your nasal passages. You know, you wake up and you do things like that. They show you how to do that, and whether it's for you or not. And there's some deeper, more intense practices that they don't even get into because it's uh, pretty intense. So. There's a bit of that. You wake up, you do that, and then you go and they teach you about sitting and uh, doing breathing exercises that they purify your nadis, which is where energy flows in your body. There's different quadrants and each specific breathing exercise purifies those quadrants. Uh, purifying meaning taking out the blocks and, and just the flow, the body needs to flow and work in harmony. And we, through experience, life experience, dis-ease, anytime we experience anxiety or negative things, we get these energy blocks. And so yoga clears that out on a daily level. It can clear out the past slowly, but surely. But eventually, doing these breathing exercises, it naturally just clears that stuff. So you... You do this every day as a uh, maintenance thing. But it took me going to boot camp and training to get beyond my mental restrictions that I was putting on myself. Like I am sort of have attention deficit. And meditating to me was torture to sit for 40 minutes. And it was torture. And that training was torture until I got over the hump where I started to feel the benefits and just this feeling of, of bliss and peace from the pain of my torturous wanting and thoughts. And, you know, I'm being a bit dramatic, but, you know, ultimately, if, if I'm free from all my desires, I'm pretty happy, you know. So it just basically is like rebooting your computer. You know, you start zoo, clear, and then the day goes on and stuff happens and I still react and I still have to deal with, well, I want to get this job done. And, you know, I still go through the same torture, but, you know, I'm just got the tools to work at it. And so that breathing exercises uh, really help. And then they set you up for meditation. So it's that single pointed focus that it all helps feed into a calmer mind and Yoga identifies when the mind breath is calm, the mind is calm. So all the exercises work towards slowing down the breath. And a yogi, a serious yogi, can slow his heartbeat down to almost, they can almost stop their heart, like slow it right down. They can, there's these yogis 
in India where all they do is practice yoga. Like that's their life and they're there to, to show what, what this can do. They can bury themselves for days and then they, they come up and it's just crazy what you can achieve. And the big takeaway of my training was that to realize that my thoughts are not real. They're not reality, nor is anyone's. But so you go through your training, you teach your first class, and then you share what that was like for you. And then the people that took that class share what it was like for them. And that was the big aha moment for me in that the true nature of the mind is is not reality. So my thoughts, what I think, has nothing to do with reality. Because I thought my class, you know, it went okay for a while, and then at some point I experienced some anxiety, and I thought it totally sucked and crashed and went south. And then I heard what the other people experienced, and they experienced something completely different. It had nothing to do with my experience. So that was to realize that my mind is not, my thoughts are not real. So when I get thoughts and they're often about judgment or I know that it's not true and it's not real. And I know when people judge me and they have opinions, it's not real. It's just their experience that created their thought patterns. And so yoga frees us of that, makes us aware of that and gives us the tools to to be liberated from that torture for me is torture now, really. Mm. I think that what you're describing about that internal voice and the judgments mm. is something that most of us struggle with tremendously. And so maybe just to clarify, are you saying that having a meditation practice and a yoga practice that reboots the mind in the morning helps you deal with those problems that creep up during the day in a, in a more efficient or quicker way. Is that what you're saying? Or it definitely helps. And not to say I've arrived and, and I no longer experience these things, but I know, and I've seen it enough that it's just, it's, it's a reaction to something. It's a, my a reaction to life. And yeah, by rebooting and meditating every day, it gives me a, a fresh start and it also it's a practice in that eventually the teachings say you do change your vibrational level you change your thought patterns uh, you come closer to that openness and connection call it love call it god it's like not being colored by experience and scars you know scars of fear and it's still there, but it, it lessens. And the true practice, if we practice the teaching, say, you know, the more you practice, the more healing and clearing of that energy. Because the physical body, all that trauma or the things that we do over and over again, say we have negative thoughts or we've experienced anger over and over again, that eventually becomes an energy block and a dis-ease leads to a physical ailment, a disease, a disease. And so the yogis and the practice of yoga, it's like maintenance. It can clear that as well as keep it clear. And, you know, if we're vibrating in harmony with everything around us, there is no dis-ease. And I truly feel that the body will remain healthy. But when there's imbalance, 
And then there's the whole environmental and the lousy food that is now in our system. I mean, that, that all comes from disharmony with, with nature as well. And it just continues to manifest. So, like I say, that realizing the nature of the mind is the big thing for me and knowing that what you see is what you get. All these cliches, but we have to change something and it's a practice and yoga just gives me some tools to be aware and actually physically help purify in the past and keep the present and the future healthy. Thank you for sharing. You know, I, I think I'm, I might be underestimating how open you're being right now or, or a little unaware about how open you're being. And I want to thank you for sharing these really personal things wow. and letting people know, you know, where you're at and what's important mm. to you and what you're feeling and your doubts and insecurities. And mm. these are wonderful things to be sharing with each other. And I think that it's uh, really valuable because I think that uh, a lot of us are struggling with a lot of different things. And it's really nice to hear people opening up and expressing mm. some of the struggles that they've had and more importantly talking about some of the tools and methods and things that they're doing to try to affect better change within their own lives which is pretty much all we can do you know is, is my take on it is that mm. all, all this external change we attempt to have in our lives is definitely not as useful as just turning the focus inward and working mm. on ourselves mm-hmm yeah, well, for, for, for me, when I look at the big picture and all the change that's happening, it's obvious we're not separate from that. And even, you know, people like Einstein has great quotes in that. I forget, there's one about humans realizing that we're not separate from nature is, is such an important thing. And so all these things going on with nature, well... There's turmoil, so why wouldn't there be turmoil in, in us as well? And that, and it's not just a reaction to nature, it's it's because we're a part of it. And the last hundred years, we've sort of, I've seen seen anyway, that, that disconnect and that whole, it's all about that ego and the torture that, that we go through as humans. It's all ego-based, and, and as soon as we surrender to what is, it gets a lot easier and, and we do a lot less harm to each other and because ego not that it's a bad thing everything has to exist ego is identification really it's nothing it it is it's just to be aware of how that makes us uh, act and where it is in the big picture you know makes sense and we're all here human experience i've yet to meet someone that's got it all together <laughs> and if they do appear to have it all together my experience shows that that's pretty ego-driven often, and it's often a mask. You know, you find that person that spent so much energy keeping it together has a crash. And uh, that's just part of being human, I think. Um, we have to surrender. Well, I have to surrender to, to find uh, peace, that ego, eventually becomes dirt in the ground. <laughs> for sure. You said that you've been teaching on the island for a little while. How's the teaching been coming along? How have you been enjoying that? Well, I love sharing the practice. It's, uh, it's a beautiful practice that I still have those 
voices in the head that I deal with every day as far as is it good enough or same things that torture me playing music. It's still there, but through the practice, it helps me practice myself and it's just so rewarding and it just seems to have a steady sense of purpose in that music has always given me like as I talk about dropping in into a mountain face snowboarding or playing music it's all about connection with something greater which has driven me to do lots of things it's that connection that um drives me I guess and now it's just become easier through that practice of yoga okay maybe just to get back into Pender stories a little bit delving back into when you said that you were integrating into the community and decided to be here full time and and making connections with people and being there for birthday parties how did that live up to your expectations well it's like anything it's wonderful things about it and it feels like it feels great. It's nice to experience again. And then a part of me had withdrawals from performing and playing and wanting to perform and play more. So it's just achieving balance is always a struggle for me, but I keep working towards it. You know, now when I play music, I enjoy it more than ever. And I'm working on getting out there and playing more. And I have been, and it's good. So I stopped playing music for a while, kind of fooling, trying to fool myself that I don't need to play music, but it really, really feeds my soul. So I do it for that. And and at the same time, the value of being a part of a community, I enjoy that. And uh, so it, there is, the balance is happening. Delightful. The second traditional question we always get to on the podcast is uh, who's helped you along the way on Pender Island? And uh, this is intended to, you know, show the connections that exist within our community and sort of give mention to other people in our lives who have sort of stood out and helped each other. And I like asking this question because it, uh, it really sort of demonstrates what a helpful island this is, which the only reason I learned that was because I started asking people this question in the podcast, but mm. to ask you about, uh, you know, the help that you've received on the island from people uh, who's helped you on Pender Island. Oh, man. I feel the answer to that is basically the, the whole island, almost everybody. I'm, I'm afraid that I'll forget names and all kinds of people, but yeah, I just feel the whole community really is so supportive. Names kind of fall away right now because there's just so many that's okay so you'd say that uh you've received a, a ton of support on the island from from virtually everybody that's the way it feels i mean people coming out to our gigs playing i can't think of anybody that really there's not a lot of non-support one pender i mean there's opinions that fly left and right and i don't pay attention to too much of that on social media, so I'm pretty free of it all. <laughs> it's just, yeah. What's great about any community is like when things happen, people find a way to help each other, and, and we all really love to help for the most part. And it takes sometimes takes the power going out and things like that to really see that in different ways. But it's a beautiful thing, and I'm just so glad to be 
part of a community like that. What does Pender Island mean to you? What does this place mean to you as being a, a resident and a community member and eventually deciding to settle down here? How do you uh, reflect on what Pender means to you? Well, it's, it's a beautiful place. It's been my home, which I've worked hard to cultivate and shape. And it's a safe place, which I... Uh, value immensely and it's a place that can be fairly anonymous you know as being a performer you're out there in the world I can go to the hardware in my ratty old work clothes and be a ratty old farmer dude and uh, it's awesome it's nice to be uh, have a comfortable safe place to live you know, I think for some people listening to this uh, who are not living on Pender Island or don't live in small communities, I really like hearing people describe their personal impressions and interactions of what our particular community is like. And it's it's been really uh, inspiring and encouraging to hear different people giving different answers. But I like how you describe it as being a safe place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's hope it stays that way. Nothing stays the same forever, but it's all... It's a small enough community, and uh, I know it's changed a lot lately in, in that there's more people coming from different places, and I don't notice or know everybody. It's, it's different now. There's sort of anonymity, which meaning we don't, everybody doesn't know each other. And uh, Yeah, anyway, yeah. it's changed. It is. It is changing. It's changing quite rapidly, actually. I've noticed as, just... Yeah, as the world is. Why wouldn't it not change here? <laughs> it's an excellent point. Maybe before we finish up here, I just want to uh, also go back to maybe hearing a little bit about your parents who first introduced you to Pender Island as mm-hmm. a young boy. And uh, if it wasn't for them, you you wouldn't have wound up here, it sounds like. But maybe if you'd just like to uh, just uh, describe your parents a little bit for us. Yeah, John and Anne. Quitsaw. Uh, my dad's no longer with us. He, his dream was to sail. He's a sailor from Denmark. And so this was his total dream come true, moving to the ocean from Edmonton and uh, built his house pretty much single-handedly. He was a carpenter, worked hard, and my mom helped. And they worked hard their whole life. And my mom still lives here. She's busy and hard. Um, it's hard to keep up with her. She's so amazing and doing her thing, showing up at the slow coast and playing harmonica. And yeah, like I say, I'm blessed to have had such great parents and they've helped me out along the way so many ways. And as far as I can tell, mom will continue to live here as long as she can. And it's a lot different when they moved here and uh, I guess things will always continue to evolve. Yeah, for sure. I think it's a common story that uh, people are introduced to this island through their parents Mm -hmm. and, or through family members, but that's uh, right. Yeah. You see those families here and often the kids come back and live or some there's families, people stay here. It's It's amazing and a beautiful thing. Definitely. Yeah. 
maybe just before we wrap this up, from the time that you've been here full time on the islands as you bought a house and you talk about how things have changed and things are changing around the world and the island's no different, what sort of changes to the island have you seen that have been positive that uh, that you've you've been uh, encouraged by? Um, there's more families moving here, it seems, younger people. So that creates new energy in the community. I can see it being easier for some people to make a living here when, when there's a higher population, which is good to a degree for some people and for other people it, it doesn't manifest in that way. I guess there's just more diversity. Uh, so I guess there's a broader demographic now, I, which I think is healthy for a community. At one point, it was mostly retirement and uh, retiring folks. So now there's people committed to living their lives here. And so there's more of that, which I think built a stronger, a stronger community. Yeah, definitely. You know, that's something that I'm so inspired by and I love about this community is that you can interact with somebody 30 years older than you or 30 years younger, depending on your age, but it, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really seem as if age is a big divide right. within the community. Yeah. And it's uh, it's just people being people. And I think that's such a lovely component of this island. It's really cool. I'm, I'm sure that exists in other islands as well, too, in other small communities. But to me, it really stands out as a uh, wonderful feature of mm -hmm. this this place. It's an, just to add, it's amazing how every island has a different vibe, too. <laughs> it's it true. really is true. As soon as you come to an island, there's certain different vibes. And uh, I mean, it's the energy of the whole that shapes that, really. And so whatever, for whatever reason, each island has a different vibe and that's all been directed by a lot of factors, but you know, everything we do plays a part in that. And, uh, I, I think, uh, it's a good thing to realize and be a part of. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And that's something that through doing this podcast, I've come to have a better understanding as to what our island is like mm -hmm. through having these one-on-one -on -one conversations with people and asking questions. And I think it'd be amazing if other people on other Gulf Islands did the same thing and, mm -hmm. you, you know, got to understand more what yeah. Galliano is like or Salt Spring. And why. And, yeah. Yeah. And why. And, uh, yeah, anyways, it's very interesting, but I guess we'll, uh, we'll start to wrap it up here. And is there anything uh, else you want to add to, uh, tell the people of Pender Island and to uh, tie off this conversation with and to, uh, to put a little bow on top? Uh, like I say, it's, it's a real honor to be a part of this community and I really value it. And that we all need to um, continue to accept each other and, and work together and uh, in this community and the bigger picture and the whole I mean, a small community kind of forces you to do that, but it's needed now more more than ever. So for all of us to play our part within that, am I, does my actions create division or does it create uh, together? It's a question I, I uh, need to ask myself a lot. I think it's a healthy question to ask ourselves uh, regularly yeah. during, the, during the day. Can't be bad. Can't be bad. No. Definitely. Lester, amazing. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much for coming in. Awesome.
All right. Well, once again, I'd like to say thank you to Lester for doing that interview. And to honor that interview, I decided I'd come to Greenburn Lake. So Greenburn Lake is located on the South Island. And to get here, I drove for about 15 minutes past the bridge. And just before getting to the fire hall, there's a sign that says Greenburn Lake. And it's beside little bit of a steep road so I parked and walked up for about 15 minutes and got to the lake and took a look around and it's this beautiful spot that I really enjoy and it has a dam on it but it is a really tranquil beautiful place where there's always a lot of bird activity I notice and once visiting the lake I turned around and went down the road a bit and then was able to find a way to scamper up the hill and climbed up onto a ridge and got to a high point. So here I am sitting on some rocks that are covered in moss that are soaking wet from a really intense rainfall we had last night. And I'm just sitting on a jacket to keep myself dry. And the trees are still dripping some water. The wind's blowing a little bit. And it is the morning of the winter solstice right now. And the sun is behind the clouds. I have not seen it make an appearance yet, but it is a uh, beautiful place. And the reason I decided to come here was because I wanted to come to a bit of a high point on the island. I felt like that was representative of Lester, maybe because he's tall. <laughs> but actually, more than that, it uh, is reflective of him talking about his snowboarding stories and climbing up mountains and snowboarding down. And I wanted to come to a place that was high and beautiful. And here I am. So thanks again to Lester. And I want to take this opportunity to do a bit of a season wrap up because this is the last episode of the season. And I want to take time to acknowledge all the people who have done an interview with me this year. I am so grateful for their participation because without them, there'd be no show. So I want to say thank you to Lisa Bale, Andy Novak, John Gowan, Carl Hampson, Leslie McBain, John Miles, Iwa Yarosinska, Amanda Landa, Steve LaRouche, Sandy Shreve, Paul Wittershoven, Monica Petrie, Lauren Mann, Steve Wright, and Lester Quitsov. And I also want to give a very special thanks to Connie Octorloni and Harry Brackett, who partook in the first two Southern Gulf Islands heritage recordings that I did in the summertime, which are recordings that are strictly in their voices. And thank you to them for allowing me into their homes and recording them there and having some deeper history of the island recorded through those interviews. Like I said, there'd be no show without these people. And this experience of doing this podcast I find very enriching in my life and thank you to those people for saying yes to putting themselves out there and taking a risk and telling a bit of their story to the community and yeah just sharing. I also want to say thank you to Tarmigan Arts for helping me this year to fund this project. The very first year that I did this I did it all on my own and <laughs> after hearing a lot of people saying you should talk to Tarmigan about getting some help with this. I did. And I'm glad I did because they were able to give me some financial support for hosting the podcast online, 
for getting some better equipment and a little bit for my time involved in doing this. Thank you to them. And thank you to Ben McConkie for providing the updated theme music for this show. He did it about a year ago. And every time I pop it into a podcast and listen to it, I just love hearing it. So thanks, Ben. Thanks for doing that. Really appreciate that. And I also want to say thank you to you, the listener, because without people listening to this, I wouldn't be doing it, I don't think. Uh, It's what keeps people going in their artistic pursuits is having people who appreciate and want to share in it. And I also want to take this time to talk about a, a new project that I've set up that is a business where I do private recordings with people for them to share with their family members or their friends, but not for public, but just for whoever they want to share with. I've decided to call it my audio memoir. And what I do is I do extensive pre-interviews with people to figure out the stories that are important to them, to get to know them a little bit better before we start recording. And then I will record people's stories and then spend a lengthy period of time editing it down to make sure it sounds crisp and coherent and very listenable for people in the future. If you ever wanted to record yourself for your children or your grandchildren or even your great-grandchildren that have thought about doing it but didn't know how, or if you were a parent who would like to record your own parents' stories to get to have those documented and to get those preserved for yourself and for future generations. This is something I really feel passionate about, and I really want to work more on these. So how I stumbled across this idea is through doing the podcast for the last couple of years, I've really recognized that people have amazing stories and that putting things out publicly, it's not really the place for super intimate storytelling. I've noticed that as the podcast has unfolded, that people are becoming a little more comfortable with it. But to have private recordings that are strictly intended for only the people that you want to hear your storytelling, people can go more in-depth into their life experiences to help give some perspective as to how they felt at certain periods in their life, what they think about things, and really go in-depth into who they are, which I really think is the most important part of our expressions. The physical stories that happen to us, the things that we do in life come from feelings and from thoughts and from ideas. And we take those actions and we tell a lot of stories about the actions that we take, but not necessarily about the feelings behind them. And that's what I'm hoping to capture with these recordings with people to do it in the privacy of people's homes and to make a safe environment and to have a really wonderful lasting recording So future generations can really have a very in-depth and clear understanding of their ancestors. Part of the reason that I decided to do this was because when I was 17, my dad was ill, and I don't think we quite knew how ill he was. And the summer I was 17, I was laying on the couch watching TV, and he was laying on the other couch watching TV over numerous afternoons, and my dad would tell me stories of his childhood in Saskatchewan. And he would talk about friends he had, things he did, 
life experiences, thoughts. And I was a little too emotionally immature or unready to absorb these stories. And I was more intrigued as to what was going on with the television in front of me. And I didn't really listen very well. And these stories are mostly lost. And I think about this often. And at the time, if I had an opportunity to record it, I wouldn't have even thought about it or been interested. But certainly at this point in my life, with my dad, who died shortly after that and is no longer here, what I wouldn't give to have a recording in his own voice to give me greater understanding and perspective as to who the man was, who was my father. So that being said, that's part of the reason why I'm passionate about wanting to do this for people and to create something for people to have, to have a lasting memory of people in their lives who aren't going to be here forever. So if you're at all interested, you can contact me through an email address that I've set up and I can tell you more about pricing and more details about what the experience would be like. But the email address is myaudiomemoir at outlook.com. It's in the show notes and I can spell that out for you. It's M-Y-A-U-D-I-O-M-E-M-O-I-R at outlook.com. I'm able to record people if they're off of Pender Island, of course, Vancouver Island, Vancouver, that's no problem. And this is something I'd like to do more of in the future. And this is something that I think is incredibly beneficial. Please, if you have any inclination about this, feel free to contact me and I can tell you more about it. So there we go. That's it for the end of season wrap up and explaining the memoir project that I'm working on. Thanks for listening to this. I appreciate you uh, hanging until the end here and my bum's getting a little bit cold. So I'm going to stand up now (laughs) and get moving again. But once again, thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for all the people who partook this year Thank you to this beautiful island that we exist on. Thank you to this rock for allowing me to sit on it and the moss as well, too. Thank you for the rain that looks like it's coming my way. And we'll see you guys in 2020. I'll be back with hopefully 20 episodes next year. That's what I'm aiming for. And we'll see if I'm able to do it. So hang in for that. Enjoy the returning of the late. And until next time.